Well, we've done it, everybody. We've made it to the end of 2018. What a year. And the loosely defined season four of the Liturgist <laughs> Podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you might say, I've noticed that the seasons don't have a consistent amount of episodes or amount of time duration in them. I think season four has been the longest we've done. Yeah. Seems like it. Seems like it's it. It's like almost a year or something. Could be a year and a half. <laughs> you you don't be, know. I don't could know. Could be six months. It, it, Probably longer than six months. Yeah, I feel like it's been longer than six months. <laughs> I think it's been like almost a year. And what I'm learning listening to this conversation is that you and I don't have the temperament <laughs> to organize the release of media content along a temporal axis. Would that be fair? <laughs> That's very fair. We do have the, the skills to make great media content. As we will see in this very show. But we don't have any capacity to organize the two of us, <laughs> and especially not larger groups of people, into making this podcast on a, a temporally consistent basis. Very consistent quality execution wildly inconsistent temporal execution so we need help and we're admitting that and it means for the first time ever the liturgists are hiring <laughs> uh we're hiring an associate producer for the liturgist podcast you have to be in the la area uh to or willing to, to be part of it or be willing to relocate yeah and we're looking for someone who's like really independent and self-guided who doesn't need a lot of who is more a person who leads than one who needs to be led. Someone who's really passionate about processes and is uh, really persistent, uh, but still pleasant in helping creative people stay on schedule and be aware of what needs to be done. This is a great position for anyone who's been involved in media in some capacity, especially as an assistant and is making to look to make a leap into more of the production side, more of the execution side, and even the management side of media production. Obviously, we're saying it on this podcast because we figure if you have media experience and you listen to the Liturgist podcast, you get what we're trying to do. And for season five, we have a big vision to expand the, the cast of contributors to this podcast, and we know how to do it uh, on paper, how to do it day by day, there's not a chance in a non-existent hell <laughs> that Michael and I could pull it off. <laughs> and that's where you come in. So if you go to theliturgist.com slash careers, that's a real, that's a thing that exists in this universe now, <laughs> is a liturgist careers page. Uh, you can see more about the position as well as in, in your cover letter and resume. Um and I'm super, super nervous about what happens next, but excited to potentially work with you. So we're doing our first clip show. Yeah. I was, when you first brought this up, I was a little like, oh, okay, just kind of throw it away. But I'm actually, now that I've been listening through some of these clips, we got patrons uh, to offer and some people on the Mighty Networks to offer us some clip suggestions and just going back and and reliving it especially through the holiday season that we've been in here it's really nice we've we've had some really great moments on this show um i wanted us to make one just because i wanted to hear it 
because I never remember anything that happens on the Liturgist podcast <laughs> yeah. or any podcast I record. So I thought it was a nice retrospective for me personally. So I'm glad it worked out for you and possibly the audience as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're going to do, well, let's just, we'll, I'll, I'll tell you which clips were recommended by the people and that we can kind of introduce them that way. Okay. See, if you, see if you remember them at all. Um, let's start with you know, this one. You'll definitely remember the tongues moment. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I remember that. All right, let's dive in. Here we go. I'm gonna be real. I've never heard anyone speak in tongues other than very short audio samples online. Really? Yeah, I, Southern Baptist. Right. Not right. a thing. I mean, it's in the Bible, so it's okay, but. If you want, like, uh, some real powerful, quiet shunning, show up to a Baptist church for the first time, raise your hands and start speaking in tongues, and just the, like, the icing that will occur around you, it's not subtle. And then the pastor will come out of church and say, hey, you have the gift of tongues. Did you notice if there was an interpreter or not? Oh, there was no interpreter? It's unbiblical. Out. Out, please. Mm. What if you came with an interpreter? Uh, it would put a real... Real conundrum for the Baptists. <laughs> I think they would just resort to sustained social shunning. Wow. Like just no one would ever talk to you. Wow. I would love <laughs> to go to a Southern Baptist church and be one of your interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> just keep it biblical. Just keep it biblical. They would they would also test everything you're saying against the Bible. Yeah. Because if it's if you're speaking in tongues, there has to be an interpreter, but what the interpreter is saying has to be I'm just going to read like Habakkuk or something. <laughs> like, the, oh, that's what she was doing. Listen to this. That was the first chapter. <laughs> She's just reciting scripture. False prophecy? Yes, yeah, false prophecy. Uh, Hold on. I want to be real. We did a whole episode on tongues. Okay. Where 75% of the hosts have experienced speaking in tongues. On three, right? And yet no one has spoken tongues, so the curious can even understand what that bit. might sound like. You want to sing in tongues? Let's all go. Let's all go at the same time, and this right. will take you us out. Count us in. Into my nightmare. In three. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we really doing this? Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, that's yeah. how we're going to go out. All right. All right. Three, two, one. I'm out. Just so y'all know, I have prayed for Brother Mike to get the gift of tongues, and we're still waiting and believing for that miracle. That literally scared the shit out of me. Yes, God. Yes, God. Whoa, man! I was like the, all three at the same time. It's very oh, un- singing in tongues is way better. I Let's can see how that like produces, yeah, uh, an energy, powerful response from holy cow. You had a whole room doing that. It's a thing. <laughs> I was through the headphones off. Like, I can't do it. It's like no. Uh oh. Uh oh. This guitar's out of tune. It is. Here we go. One. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah.
Okay, but if, if we do this long enough, you'll speak in tongues. <laughs> I, here's the problem. I'm the person who does what? Searches for and assigns linguistic meaning to literally everything. And so you've got, you're just like, hey, here's some sounds. You can't assign meaning to them. Oh, cool. <laughs> you're just taking me off my map of the universe suddenly. <laughs> And involuntarily. <laughs> that's why we had you count us in. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. I think it made good we radio. Gave, we should have given you a safe word. <laughs> I'm out was a pretty good one. <laughs> okay, for this next one, this wasn't actually requested, but I'm requesting it because I... <laughs> You're a I patron? I'm a patron. <laughs> it's true. I'm requesting this as a patron. The epistemology episode where you describe um, special relativity. What do you describe? Just relativity in general. Yeah. Relativity in general. That I thought that was a good moment. <laughs> With Richard Rohr and Rachel and Evans, as I recall. <laughs> That's correct. They didn't know they were part of that <laughs> segment, but they were. <laughs> Let's see how that one was. Uh, There's two major ways to kind of undermine a single objective perspective as being valid in science. The first is Einsteinian relativity. Let's just do a little thought experiment that is completely valid and this is well-demonstrated physics. And so I want you to imagine for a second a railroad car. You know, like a train car, but not like a box car, one of the flat ones. A flat railroad car being pulled by a very powerful railroad engine on train tracks. And on one end of the car, the front end of the car, toward the engine, I'm standing there. And on the other end of this flat rail car, Michael is standing there. The two of us are facing each other. And we have incredibly high-powered Nerf guns. These Nerf guns have been specially made just for this uh, live liturgist podcast duel. So they fire a nerf dart at the speed of a bullet, but without doing harm, since Michael and I are both largely pacifists. (laughs) Now, in addition to having high-powered nerf guns, we're both wearing helmets with LEDs in them and sensors. And these LEDs go off whenever they're exposed to a bright flash of light like you would get from, say... A flash uh, photo. Are you with me so far? Me and Michael, opposite ends of a rail car, wearing funny helmets with LEDs, holding high-powered Nerf guns. I'm with you, Mike. In the middle of the rail car is Rachel Held Evans. I'm Rachel Held Evans. (laughs) And Rachel Held Evans is holding a firecracker. Why is she holding a firecracker? Because her job is to start the duel by lighting the firecracker dropping it to the center of the rail car and taking a step back. Now, once she drops the firecracker, she just has one job to make sure there's no cheating. She wants to make sure that neither Michael or I fire our Nerf gun before we get a signal and that we both get signals at the same time. So she's got a pretty complex task, but she can stand far enough back that she can see us both at the same time. Now, we're all on a rail car together. This rail car is going pretty fast. Up above the tracks is a tower. And on the tower stands that great Francescan Richard Rohr. 
Yes. And Richard's Roar job is simply to back up Rachel. He's a second set of eyes to make sure that neither Michael or I cheat because we're both really competitive. So here's what happens. Rachel lights the firecracker, drops it, and steps back. The firecracker goes off, and of course, Michael and I both fire our Nerf guns. And Rachel says, oh, wow, good job. That was a fair draw. You both got the signal at the same time, and you both fired at the same time. And Richard Rohr radios in and says, no way. No, no, no. That wasn't fair, because the light reached Michael Gunger first. And so Science Mike was at a disadvantage. Richard Rohr's got quite the eyesight. There's no one to compete with. You understand? It's all embracing. It's nature itself. Richard Rohr. Well, that's why we've got the flashing LED helmets, right? So he could see that your LEDs went off first and my LEDs went off second. Rachel saw both LEDs go off at the same time. So who's telling the truth? They both are. They're both telling the truth. Rachel and me and Michael all saw the lights go off at the same time and had a fair draw. Richard, Father Roar, (laughs) saw Michael's lights go off first. Both are true because there is no such thing as a universally simultaneous reality. And in fact, the closer that rail car got to light speed, the more pronounced that difference would be. Uh, And that's just like one thing in relativity. Another idea in relativity is if you had a, a train that was traveling near light speed, you could conceivably have it pass through a tunnel where the observer on the train would see the tunnel as shorter than the train, but an observer not on the train would see the opposite. One would see the train shorter than the tunnel, the other would see the tunnel longer than the train. That doesn't seem possible, except that it's a proven aspect of reality. That literally, you can't agree on a universal basis the order in which events occur, because there is no universal now. That is my all-time favorite episode of the Liturgist Podcast. It's not close. That's a good one. Just like when we said it at the time, if you listen to that episode and you get it, you don't need any additional episodes of Liturgist Podcast ever. That's the secret sauce underneath every episode. Um, all right, let's let's move on here. This one is a little bit m- more emotional, um, but it's also one of the core things that this without this episode. And this story, the liturgists would not exist. So we want, I wanted to go back to uh, Lost and Found. Oh, wow. And just hear sort of the... I mean, your book came out of this. Sort of your career came out of this. Whole career, pretty much. Leaping out of those two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, those still, when I look at the analytics, are, are still well, easily the most popular episodes on an ongoing basis from season one. But consistently, on a daily basis, in the top ten of episodes downloaded. I remember we were in a hotel room in, where were we, like, Ohio or something? Yeah. Yeah, Ohio, I think. And on some 58 mics, 
SM58. Oh, my friend brought us microphones. We didn't yeah. have microphones. We didn't have microphones because I just did a show, a Gunger show. Yeah. And we're like, let's just do a quick podcast in the hotel with our 58s. And uh, I remember the feeling. It was, it was a good one. Good feeling. Mm-hmm. So some people walk up and just take the Eucharist and it's a sacred moment. But other people have like their moment with Rob. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is this is strange. I don't know if I can do this. Um, but finally, I get up because there's like a lull in the Eucharisting, and I start walking up to Rob. And as I start to walk up, Rob's eyes turn all red and teary. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, uh, strange. Um, but as I'm thinking that, I was tears were running down my face. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that. Like, my friend later told me that I had tears running down my face. That's how dissociated I was. And uh, so I walk up, and Rob holds out this piece of bread. He says, Mike, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And there's a couple things I want to mention here. One is this is an act, the way the Eucharist is done, where this is a thing offered that you have to then take. They don't just like drop it in your hands. They don't toss it to you. They hold it out and you take it. And I've had this moment of moral conviction because I was like, I can't take a piece of bread that represents a body I don't think existed. When you're wrestling with the idea of whether God is real or are past wrestling that, Jesus was just either an ordinary rabbi who was pumped up through a, a game of telephone or a myth. Without God, Jesus is just not very interesting. So I'd spent no time thinking about Jesus. I'd only thought about God. And so I was like, I can't take this bread. It's not, it's a piece of bread. And if I take this, I'm lying to all these people. They're going to feel like they've had this big moment where this atheist has become a Christian again. And they're going to go tell their friends. And... I'm not that guy, and I'm not going to do it just for social pressure. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to turn and leave. Mm-hmm. And here's the part that's insane. This is crazy. It ruins the credibility of the story, but it happened, so I have to retell it. <laughs> I heard a voice, and that voice said, I was here when you were eight and I'm here now. Jeez. (laughs) Like, I lost it. I took the bread, I dipped it in the wine, I ate it, and I literally ran from the room. And I go to my hotel room and it's a surfer hotel so it's just like beds and a place to put surfboards. There's not even a desk. And I want, I, I don't know why, but I wanted my, my journal, my notebook. So I get it. And I had this really nice pen I got in San Francisco. That's an odd detail in the story. But <laughs> I really like that pen. And uh, it's a Tombow. Anyway, so, and there's nowhere for me to write. And I don't even know what I'm going to write, but I know I need to write. And at this point in my life, it's not even like I was a writer. You know what I mean? So I just kind of like wander around the back of the hotel because I'm so afraid to see anybody because 
I look crazy carrying a notebook and a pen and sobbing hysterically. And uh, so I finally figured, well, enough time has passed. Surely all these people have left the conference. And there was a table right outside the venue. So I sort of sneak over. And there was nobody outside. I was like, score. So I sit down and I open my notebook. And I take my very fancy Japanese pen. And I write, dear God, comma. Like I'm writing a letter to God. And, and then I just start crying again. Hmm. Like all this grief that I'd sort of like buried over losing God and my parents' collapsed marriage. It was all just this toxic sludge in my psyche. It just, it's geysering out of me now. Hmm. And, uh, and I write a letter to God. And I can't read it as I write it because of the tears. I mean, it's as hard as I've ever cried in my life. And um, and I close the notebook, and uh, this, this Methodist pastor named Sarah comes out and sits with me and just holds me, um, hmm. welcomes me back. And I remember thinking, what do you mean, welcome back? Welcome back to what? It's, I don't know what happened. I don't know what's happening. I think I hallucinated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it wasn't just this automatic. There was no resolution. The Bible still seemed ridiculous. Yeah, I still thought the Jesus mythicists were pretty compelling. I just ate a piece of bread and had an auditory hallucination. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is the uncut version, guys. So, um, you don't get this part live. So, so I go out uh, drinking with these pastors. <laughs> And I realized, one, drinking pastors are awesome because everybody just has, like, a beer and nobody gets wasted. Well, and, you get wasted on a beer, though. Well, I can, but most people can. <laughs> and the other thing is, when you have a large group of plain-looking men in a bar who are not drinking very much but look like they're having a blast, that's, like, the most powerful evangelism possible. Because all these people are just attracted to you. And I remember all these amazing conversations with people who weren't in the club. They weren't Christians. Um, but they felt this solidarity with us because they didn't feel judged by us. Hmm. Really amazing stuff. And so uh, they all have to like go to bed at some point because they got flights the next day. So it's like 2.30 in the morning, and I don't feel like I can go to bed yet. I have that same seven-year-old unresolved feeling. It's back. So I walk down to the beach, and um, it's dark. It's really dark. It's, it's Laguna dark, so there's still like an L.A. light dome, but... If you just came from the street, it seems very dark. And I remember not being able to see where the sky stopped and the ocean began. But I could hear the waves and I could see the surf when it was close to me. And I realized like all I could see was one of the most powerful forces on earth. But I could I I could sense it but not see it. Mm. Like the Pacific Ocean. There's a lot of energy physically mm -hmm. in the Pacific Ocean. So I thought as a metaphor for God goes, that's pretty good. So I, on the spur of the moment, decided to just start praying to God. And, like, it was a throwdown. 
I said, God, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about you. I don't know if you wrote the Bible or if the Bible means anything. Um, I don't know if you interact with the universe or not. Um, I know that if you do interact with the universe and you have consciousness or will or agency, you got some explaining to do because my mom prayed that I would know you again and a New York Times bestselling pastor gave me personal attention. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. And at the like, literally right now, some mother in a war-torn country is praying that her children won't die. Mm-hmm. And her prayer is not getting answered. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's evil. Mm. I don't get it. It's ridiculous. So I can't tell you. I'm going to like follow the Ten Commandments and just pick up the Gospels and and be what i was yeah i can't i can't say that to you but who is it good to talk to you again hmm. i don't ever want to not talk to you again and i never want to feel like we're apart from each other again so let's make a deal i will devote my life to serving you whatever that means i will do everything in my power to make life on this planet better i will study the bible again and see what remnants of you i can find in its pages all i know is that tonight i met jesus again and when i said jesus here's the second crazy part of the story i was standing kind of high up on the beach and the Pacific rushed forward and soaked me up to mid-calf and washed all the sand off my shoes. And I was reminded of Rob saying Christ's final act of service was washing the feet of his followers. And I remember very clearly, very vividly saying, is this really happening? And then the world fell away. It was the opposite of the trap door. It was like, I don't know if like you when you were a kid, you would ever hide under the blankets. And if the blankets were stretched tight, you could see through to the other side a little bit, but it was hazy. Reality did that. And on the other side of this stretched veil is what I can only describe as the glory of God. And believe me, skeptics, I understand your confusion at that phrase. But when you experience that, like using a different word than God is like, it's too weak. It's too weak. God is the only word that we have that is for, that is intended for this experience. Like that it's big enough when you talk about the incomprehensible Mystery, the incomprehensible, uncontainable, infinite God. And you, that's, that's good language. It's good language. All right. So since we're back then in the early days, let's do one more early episode uh, right here. And I found this on my phone right as you were coming over, Mike, but I found this like a career suicide note that I recorded for myself right before we posted lgbt episode 20 i know episode 20 i 
I mean, at the time, I I did not know any Christian people that came out as affirming that didn't lose their whole career. Yeah. Because of it. Um, and I had just recently come out of starting to be okay after losing so much from my interpretations of Genesis, which was like, if that's what happened with Genesis, I was in this video preparing for the end. I was like, mm. this is it. And this is, so I just found this here. Let me play it for you. I'm about to push send on a tweet announcing a new podcast about the LGBTQ issue. I'm terrified. I can't push it. I'm afraid because I know what it's probably going to do to us. I know that it could potentially end our careers in the Christian music scene. And that sort of is our career. Uh, but I don't know how I can say that I'm a Christian and be in the Christian music scene and follow this Jesus who teaches radical love and revolution speaking against oppression from religious powers I don't know how I can just bow my knee to religious powers out of fear of not talking about a taboo issue not telling people that they're beautiful when there's so many other people telling them that they're not I want to be a part of whispering love into people's ears that need to hear it and singing beauty over the ashes, right? Over the people that have been devastated by what people told them God thinks of them. Um, So I guess I'm going to do it. I guess I'm going to push send. <laughs> Damn. Different days. Different days. I mean, in fairness, it did destroy your Christian music career. <laughs> <laughs> it, not at first. It was a real slow burn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's a real different... That's only four years ago. Yeah. Which also four years ago, I didn't know the difference between sex and gender. And <laughs> yeah. so I got on this really extended science of gender hmm. thing in that episode and conflate sex and gender over and over. Hmm. It's a different world. It's a four different years day. Ago. But at the time, that's what we, we look, we look back before, like, I mean, Obama and Hillary Clinton were not affirming yeah, several true. years ago. That's true. So it's a, it was a different day, but so if you re-listen to that episode, give us some grace, please. <laughs> <laughs> we were really new, uh, but we've hit the fruit that we've heard from this episode is you seen more than me. Cause I don't have email addresses accessible to the public. <laughs> But, I mean, from what you've heard, this episode... Yeah, far-reaching. Far I've met many, many, many 
many, many couples who came out of the closet, accepted themselves, and got married after hearing that episode. Hmm. Um, and parents. Countless. That, parents accepting their children. Yeah. Finding a, a framework to hold on to a, a religious identity and Christian that's important to them. Pastors rethinking their positions. Yeah, that, 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 that episode... Um, it's one of the high watermarks for societal or cultural impact that we've ever done because mm-hmm. uh, it, it really moves so many minds. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the, the thinking that queer people don't need straight people's approval or affirmation. Uh, but there are so many straight people and so many straight people in positions of social power and political power that I do think is an important form of advocacy in swaying enough of those minds to create the legal and societal space for queer people to thrive. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I've seen in the data and in the stories, that episode helped a lot of queer people accept themselves and a lot of straight people accept the humanity, the dignity, and indeed the morality and spiritual validity of their queer friends, family, and neighbors. Let's listen. What would you say to the person listening right now who loves God and is a member of a church that believes and preaches that um, loving someone of the same biological gender is sin or an abomination and is wrestling with that in their heart right now, what would you say to them? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I'm going to say, but I also want to just kind of bring it back to context. That, so I, I'm, in a, I'm in my PhD program right now. I've finished all my coursework. I'm, a, I'm, go, I'm in the process of deciding if I'm going to take my qualifying exams and finish my dissertation. Um, when I came out to them, I was told, if you don't make a big deal about this, you can stay if you make a big deal about this, you, we, we have to kick you out. And what they mean by that is if I take a stand and advocate. So by what I'm about to say could be seen as advocating for something that potentially has the ability for me to lose the last four years and $100,000 of my PhD. But here's the thing is that for people out there who are walking through this and belong to something and feel stuck, I would say, one, God loves you. You have people who love you. You're going to be okay. And this is probably the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And I, I would never call somebody to come out before they were ready to. If I, I couldn't have done it before I was 38, truthfully. Um, but I would say to the people out there who might be listening who belong to a conservative church um, I was just with somebody a couple weeks ago who's actually been through shock therapy and um, exorcisms because uh, he's 55 years old and he's finally come to the point of where he's accepted his sexuality after 20 years of reparative therapy including electroshock and exorcisms um, I would say that if you're in a context that that is kind of what is being taught as the only version of what biblical truth is, that there's something more out there, that there's another version 
of interpretation of Scripture, another understanding of who God is, another understanding of who you are that is, I'm going to say, at the risk now of being kicked out of my program, more valid than what you've been told and has more truth to it. Um, And you're not alone. You're so not alone in this. And there's so many people who have begun to walk this process ahead of you, but will come alongside you and hold your hand as you walk this. And it will be the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. But it doesn't mean it's wrong. And it's okay to say, God loves me just as I am. about a little palate cleanser let's let's listen to some of the songs <laughs> that have come out of this podcast yes. <laughs> and i assume you mean the silly ones the silly ones are some good ones i mean like every time you play vapor i cry because no i mean the ones for the podcast yeah. these these epistemological breakdown Have an editorial review board. Three, there's no date, you see. Four, you're gonna cite that source. Five, this bitch can't write, so you better make it right and say it's fake. Do it again, do it again, do it again. One, who wrote this shit? Two, who would publish it? Do they have an editorial review board? Three, there's no date, you see? Four, you're gonna cite that source? Five, this bitch can't write, so you better make it right and say It's fake! I mean bitch in gender neutral terms It's fake! Yeah! It's fake! Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy Joshua, Judges, Ruth First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second King, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther Job, Psalms, Proverbs Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon Jeremiah, Lamentations Ezekiel, Daniel Obadiah, Jonah, Micaniah So much to reform, 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 so much to reform. Ones on the Enneagram are called the perfectionist or the reformer. Personally, I am a two, which is the helper on the Enneagram. I love you. Oh, just let me serve you. 
It's all about you, and that makes me proud. I am a three. It's been pretty successful. I I put a lot of weight into being externally validated by others. My core motivation is to be authentic. I want to be able to be true and honest with myself and with everyone. My name is Dylan and I'm a five. Five. I hate personality tests because they never seem to describe me. And instead they only demonstrate a couple of personality traits I exhibit because I just told the test that I exhibit those traits. I have to ask lots of questions. Heading into the sixes. Just keep things light Being a seven is so much fun You can keep all your pain out of sight Being a seven is so much fun You can keep all your pain out of sight I'm an Enneagram 8 What that means to me is that I have these strengths that are like effortless superpowers. And mine are aliveness, immediacy, and confidence. In fact, I can project confidence and strength even when I don't feel them. It's just like a superpower. Let me calm your troubled mind. I relate to every side Oh, just please, dear God, don't fight I'll be your number nine I never met a soul I didn't like Except maybe when that ache kept trying to fight Nihilistic, optimistic Baptist, atheist, and mystic Maybe somehow all of you are right I'm talking about Science Mike We love you Mr. Science Mike Number nine Place. 
Open hands, Abraham. We, I'll be your man. In the when we sang that in Austin, so we started the Austin gathering with that song. <laughs> the whole gathering, like the we just came gathering. out. Mike played bass. Yes. Hillary played violin. Violin. William sang. I sang. Played guitar. Had a drummer with us, and. A fairly significant percentage of the room didn't know what the hell was happening. <laughs> Some people thought we lived, that was a real worship song. Yeah. That they'd never heard. Like, well, we also start- had, we had the lyrics with the guy on the mountain with his hands yes. up. Remember? We had, Which like, we the- thought was so on the nose, it was obvious parody. <laughs> yeah. But apparently it was like we went into Poe's Law. Yeah. Couldn't tell the was- difference between parody and extremism. <laughs> Which for us was perfect. I mean, that was a win. We counted that as a win. Huge win. We probably t- got a little dock on the score sheet for it, but, but. Austin scored really high though. Okay. So that, uh, we made up for it later. Made up. And apparently, it ended fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to think of how much music has been made for this podcast. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot. <laughs> 
Um, okay. How about next? Let's go to William in Austin, his little sermon in mm. Austin. That was pretty fiery. I do love it when William preaches. Yeah, he goes into preacher zone. You, you and William both will go into preacher zone sometimes. I only do it on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Hillary go into even the slightest preacher zone. No. And I, I rarely do. I start cussing if I do. I, I don't. <laughs> if I start getting worked up, I'm just like, fuck it, fuck, fuck. <laughs> That's LaCroix in my sinuses. That was the sound you just heard at home. <laughs> okay, so my story, do you guys remember Elijah in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, the, the prophet, right? You got to say it like that, the prophet, the miracle worker, right? And all these like tales and stories and, you know, there were oil running out of pots and, you know, he was healing people and he had this like magical mantle (laughs) that he was, you know, given to his, you know, the next generation. But I wanted to tell the story about uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Um, So in the context, I guess it's ninth century BC, they say, uh, there was this king named Ahab and Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. Who here has ever been called Jezebel in church? Raise your hand. So this is not about you. I just want, no, tr- just trigger warning. This is not about you. When Do you, you have hear a Jezebel this, spirit? Were you told you had a Jezebel spirit? Th- that's what the music minister said when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> True story. How progressive of him to call a man Jezebel too. For, for conservative Christians, that's progressive. <laughs> you know, the Jezebel spirit isn't just for women. There's men that have it too. Show. Snap, snap, snap. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that's, I've never thought of that before. That's yeah, glorious. Like, like, they were really progressive for spiritual warfare people, right? Like, that was... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Man. So, there was a, a king named Ahab who married a, a woman named Jezebel. Here's the thing, though. Jezebel, the scripture, the, the King James Version, the New King James Version I had, they, they called her cosmopolitan, meaning she worshipped many gods. So, supposedly, she, you know, worshipped the god of Baal. And she was bringing this influence into Israel. Now, far as I can understand, which basically is what Wikipedia told me. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. It's just as good as Encyclopedia Britannica was. It's just as good, y'all. It's gotten there. That's right. I remember looking up menstruation in there. <laughs> Do you remember what it said? No, but somebody had said something about that, and I was like, ah, and then I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Up to the Britannica. <laughs> when no one's around, oh, when yeah. young Michael's going to the Britannica. <laughs> <laughs> what is menstruation? <laughs> Okay, so, right, she worshipped this, this god named Baal. Um, you know, the origins of Baal is n- are not fully known, which basically means I refuse to dig deep enough to figure that out, right? That's where I says, you know, they're not fully known, but, you know, because you know, it's just a podcast. Um, <laughs> sorry, we're not an authority if you thought we were. We're, we're not. Um, but one thing is clear that Wikipedia says is that at first the name Baal was used by the Jews for their god without discrimination, but as the struggle be- between the two religions developed, the name Baal was given up by the Israelites as a thing of shame. And they actually changed, you know, a certain name that was called for God, uh, you know, Jerubabel, and they changed it to uh, Jerubosheth, which means shame. 
So what was the evil of Baal? Why was Jezebel and all of this, you know, why were they so bad? This guy that Wikipedia told me about named Brady Kelly said, basically, I guess they were into occultic sexual practices, which for the ancient world could really destabilize a whole community, right? Especially, you know, and Science Mike has talked about this many times about hunter-gatherer societies and, you know, anyway, and what marriage represents to that. So here's the story. This is the context. So Elijah, with all this corruption going on, Elijah the prophet goes to see Ahab. The Lord calls to him and says, go see the king. So he goes to see the king. And this is what he says. So Obadiah, who was the palace facilitator, uh, went to meet Ahab and told him to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, Ahab said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal. That's a lot of prophets. And the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Not you, Mike. Uh, I just like this story. So Ahab sent word through all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. Then Elijah said, I am the one and the only of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my God, the Lord, the God who answers by fire, for he is God. Then all the people said, what say is good? They're like, we good. Okay, well, let's do that. What you say is good. Okay. All right. Anyone right now want to get an audio version of the Bible read by William? (laughs) Thank you for giving me my next project. (laughs) I've never thought about that. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping or must be awakened. I mean, this is shade right here, y'all. Like, he was like, oh, where he out? He ain't here? Oh, I thought you said he was going to be here, though. Really? Really, though? Really? Ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. That was some pettiness right there so they shouted louder (laughs) and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom I guess because they were into the you know the blood sacrifice and the sex cults midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice but there was no response then Elijah said to all the people come here to me they came and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down Elijah took 12 stones each one represented the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the Lord had come, saying, You shall be Israel. With those stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around the large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut up, he he basically did it. And then he said, Do it a third time, and he did. And at the time of sacrifice, the Elijah prophet stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You know you and your mama used to pray? She used to call on like all the ancestors. Lord, the faith of my father and my father's father. No one's? Okay, that was my mom. (laughs) Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me. And so these people will know that you are Lord. Basically, the fire came. And then once the fire came, like, Elijah went and, like, slaughtered everybody. Like, the 450 prophets of Baal. Gruesome story. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word.
Okay, so I'll just say this real quick and be done. Because that story is just, it's crazy. So what he, he do by himself? Just him. He just yeah, it says Elijah yeah. slaughtered them. Yeah, yeah, by himself. Yeah. Four, that's, that is badass, y'all. 450 people just... <laughs> like they stood in line. They didn't fight back. Like, what was, what was going on? I need to know the practical dimensions of how they were slaughtered. Um, it was like Matrix. He's like flying through the air slow motion. Like, Neil, well, he was a prophet and a miracle worker, so... Um, yeah so this story registers to me because have you ever felt like you were like the only one Elijah was like I am the only prophet of the Lord left right you've been in this situation where there's some corrupt things going on or there's some people doing some shady stuff and you were like you see it and you're like I'm the only one that knows and and I've got to call it out have you ever felt that zeal don't leave me hanging y'all please nod or say yes okay right? You felt like Elijah. And I think that's why I love this story, right? Because I get like that. So I'm like, you know, especially if you are an intuitive person or, you know, for those of you that are really deep in spiritual, you, we would say you're prophetic, you know, you know, like you feel things from God or from other people. And so you're like, this is right. And that's wrong. And you feel it so strong. And then you, you, you challenge the powers, right? So imagine this, here comes Elijah. He was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab. It's always crazy that God raises up prophets, especially when they're most needed. And usually in the Bible, it's when men set themselves up as kings over other men. Prophets, according to Walter Brueggemann, represents the alternative consciousness. They provide us with the voice of God, which is always the counterscript to the false narratives of empire. Right? Sound familiar? There's always a fight for the truest name of God, especially as other names become known and associated with evil. Right. So here's Ahab and they're mixing kind of this other thing with the name of God. Right. And, and that's where the tension lies. So what happens when a word or a metaphor or a perfectly good name becomes convoluted? When a meaning or a metaphor becomes twisted to promote evil instead of good. Again, sound familiar? What happens when the truth fails in the public square? And the ones in power are corrupt. Do we call it fake news and continue on our steady diet of entertainment and apathy? Like literally, what do we do? It is in these conditions that God raises up prophets. Those who cannot take the gnawing insanity of cognitive dissonance. The ever so slight buzzing sound that you can't quite place, mainly because it's buzzing all around you. But the thing about Elijah that I love is that truth eventually has a showdown. And Elijah's brave act ended up bringing about the restoration of a whole nation. And my other favorite thing about this story is after it all happens, and after he does the brave thing, he runs away like a little child. <laughs> Jezebel's like, oh, I'm going to get you. You did what? You killed all my prophets? And then he runs into the wilderness. And then he runs into a cave. And he, st- he basically goes into deep depression and suicide. Have you been in a situation where you spoke truth to power? You said the thing that needed to be said, not out of a place of rebellion, but out of a place of love. And then you ended up being the one that ran away and got afraid? Mm. Like that resonates, right? But what are we called to do? We're constantly called to speak truth in that square. We're constantly called to call down fire and to tell the truth at any cost because it's the truth regardless of the popular opinion. Even when you know Jezebel's going to come get you, you tell the truth and you speak truth to power. And that's what I love about that story. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this was requested. The Poison Ivy story. Oh, boy. Tender ears, stop now or skip forward. 
skip forward for 10 minutes or whatever. I'll Trigger learn, warning. <laughs> Poison Ivy genital story in the next few moments. <laughs> and Mike on the computer voice, which is part of what makes it so perfect. In case any of you doubted when Mike says that he's not a viable organism, I'm sitting there looking at him right now. He's got like a cast on his foot and he's he's not talking. My throat hurts so bad. He's been recording his audiobook. So like he did six hours yesterday and six hours today. And he's uh he's real tired. He can't talk. And I am a little baby. He's a baby. I did my audiobook in twenty four hours. Now, admittedly that's crazy. But uh he's doing it all week and he's spacing it out six hours a day and he's still like losing his voice. So he's got to save it. So he's, uh, he's Mr. Computer Man today. Well, neither of us in, are in great shape, though. Well, I'll tell you what's been going on with me. This is going to be an odd one to listen to, maybe, for people. But um, So this week, we went on a, my family went on a camping trip with uh, Amelie's school. She goes to like this hippie school in L.A. where you know, her friend right now inside playing with her, is with, she's with Erwin and Pony inside. These are our... You know, it's like the, the typical, it's so wonderful. It's like, it's a loving school. If you ask about the school, it's like all very, a peaceful, loving school. Love it. Um, but we go into camp, these camps every year to go camping. And uh, to get a picture of the school, like you have, like if one kid falls, there's only like 13 kids or something. But then all the other kids, if the kid's hurt and crying, all the other kids go up and like rub their hands. And then they heal. They like stretch out their hands and heal the, <laughs> the children. <laughs> uh, when we hippie first, power. Yeah, hippie power. When we went the first year, um, we were sitting next to one of the moms. Was like, uh, "Are we in a cult?" Um, but we laugh and enjoy it. So anyway, on this trip, uh, apparently one of the people grabbed some sticks for the um, for the s'mores that night and they grabbed it from a poison oak bush and uh, no shit yeah so everybody like almost everybody on the trips got poison oak <laughs> uh, and so at least the adults the kids apparently in uh, their throats uh, I don't think so I from what I've seen you have to have a uh, like if it goes, you can get that it. That oil can transmit to food. <sighs> well, we're all, I mean, for that reason, everybody's been freaking out a little bit. Like one guy's face totally did kind of swell up and shut down. I thought that maybe I had it in my throat because I had, I've had swall- trouble swallowing a couple things, but I'm not, that was it. And I've had some of that before with just my esophagus. So I don't know if that affected it or not, but I tell you what was affected. And this is not an episode. You should never have your children listen to this ep- this podcast, by the way. Just, uh, just... <laughs> but I'll tell you where I really got this guy. What are you saying? <laughs> you don't even have to ask. Do I even need to say it? But yes. Yeah, so okay. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm getting real itchy. I'm getting real itchy down below. And I'm like, what is going on? Because we didn't know. It takes a couple days usually before poison oak to start appearing for people. Um, but this is like the day after the camping trip, and I'm like, what is happening down down there? And it's getting real bad, and then I start seeing some, like, you know, some red and bumps and, and things, and that's, 
I'm like not I'm not messing with the penis, you know. I'm not I'm not messing with it. So I'm like uh <laughs> Wonderful sound effects. I was not expecting it. I don't even, it sounds like Star Wars. Um, so I, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I call the doctor and my doctor can't see me and it's obviously getting worse and worse by the hour. And I'm like, I got to go in. So they, and you know, they're asking me questions like where, what's, what's happening with, I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's, my penis is not doing well. I don't know if it's poison oak or Something's happening. And then, so they're asking me all these questions and they found out. My, so anyway, I got in to this doctor and it was this young girl doctor. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, yeah, she's probably, hell. <laughs> she probably looks like 25 or something. She looked like, uh, I mean, she looked like fresh out of medical school sort of thing. Um, so we're talking about it and she's like, do you have any bumps anywhere else? I was like, I think it's poison oak. And I think by this time, by the time I saw her, some of the other parents are starting to talk. And like, I'm, something's wrong. One of the guys thought he had sunstroke or something. And I was like, I think it might be poison oak. Uh, and I was like, it's really, it might be. and she's like, is there anything anywhere else? I was like, I, I think I have some bites in my arms and stuff. And it seemed really like she was avoiding not wanting to look at the penis. She just kept like, you know, maybe I'll, t- I'll take a look at your arms. <laughs> There's like not hardly anything on my arms. I was like, you really kind of have to see the penis. <laughs> I feel kind of sick. <laughs> um, so then she like, she's like, all right, let's see it. Take off the gown. And she did like a straight up. And by this point, it's not looking great. I mean, it's like, it's kind of weird looking, you know? So she's like pointing at, she's like arms length away from it and kind of stretching her head back and kind of pointing at it and touching it like a dead rat or something. <laughs> she's like, yeah, let's get some, uh, tests on. So she, oh wait, actually, no, she's just kind of. Didn't know what uh, what it was. She's like, here, take some creams or whatever. Steroid shot? No, she didn't give me that. So she didn't do. She didn't know what to do. It was just kind of, but she didn't even take a close look at it. Um, so then I was. I went home with some steroid cream, uh, some lighter steroid cream, and then the next day woke up and it was like a freaking balloon animal down there. It's like all swollen and <laughs> his face is cringing as it should, and probably yours is as well. And I, I was got like, it "On my elbow once." You got it on your elbow. That was bad enough. Oh, right on your penis. I mean, it's like, I not, I don't, I still, I guess it's because the skin is just more sensitive than the other areas. I certainly didn't run around the place with my pants off. Um, so I don't know why it's only appeared on that. Maybe you can give me some science here, but from what I've read, that's just the more sensitive, uh... High moisture, too. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was real rough, and so I had to go back to the doctor, because I was like, it's significantly worse, and then she saw it the second time, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna get one of my colleagues to look at this, too, so then she had a nurse come in, so now it's two young girls in there, and she's snapping pictures of it with her iPhone, (laughs) 
to upload for their server so they can share it with their colleagues. <laughs> I asked her if she wanted my Instagram handle to tag me. And uh, she's like, yeah, you're funny. Snap, snap, snap. And then they get, the dermatologist finally got back and they gave me some prednisone. And said, keep doing that cream. And the prednisone really helped and it's been getting better. But I've been, I've been managing with like these... I read the debates online between hot water. Some people say like hot water aggravates the rash, but it definitely, if you run it under really hot water, it's like a motherfucker for a minute. And then the itch goes away for like seven hours. So it's like just going it into traumatizes the nerve endings. Yeah. And one person said it like eases up or gets rid of the histamines for a while and or something. Prevents histamine yeah. binding. Yeah. So, it, I mean, but when you first put it under there, it's like, ah! it's just, it's like all of the nerves are going crazy. Oh, and then I'm wearing, I'm, I'm doing this, putting creams on and wearing a dress around the house. <laughs> so the other morning, so the other morning, Emily walks in the door. Emily's our, she helps us and she watches the kids sometimes. Uh, and she walks in the door and I'm just there and I had no shirt on and I had a dress. So I just kind of threw a coat on real quick. So I just had like a coat and a dress. <laughs> She's like, hi. <laughs> oh, and then there's one moment. So I'm in the middle of all this and the teacher's starting to freak out because, you know, all these parents are starting to have poison oak and stuff. She's calling everybody and figuring out what's the matter. And she's freaked out about throat stuff or whatever. And so I'm with somebody and she's really questioning me like, where, what's going on with the poison oak? Do you have poison oak? I was like, yeah, I think so. Where? I'm like, I mean, you know, it's kind of here. I'm with somebody and she's my preschool teach daughter's preschool teacher. I'm like, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's on diff- my car. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And she's really asking uh, real specific questions about it. That fucking thing is huge. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's what I didn't want to say to my daughter's preschool teacher, so I just kind of didn't say. And then today at school, when I dropped off Amelie, she's like, oh my gosh, Amelie came to school yesterday and told everybody that you had poison oak all over your wiener (laughs) and that you've been wearing a dress at home (laughs) let's get a good uh hillary speech in here here's one from man where she talks about how masculinity affects men Hmm. this immediately leads me to think about men's emotional health and well-being and how much gets disconnected from the person when scripts like Be a Man come in, come onto the scene. So to back this up and give you a little bit of a developmental psychology perspective, there was a woman named Carol Gilligan who started doing research with girls about what is moral development? How do we make moral decisions? Because so much of the research, particularly what was done by Kohlberg and his theory of moral development, said that people make moral decisions in a certain way And there's a hierarchy that you are more moral if you make decisions that reflect the top tier of decision-making. 
And whenever women were put through this grid, they would always come up short as being morally inferior because they didn't make decisions in the way that it it was represented on this grid. So Carol Gilligan started doing this research with young girls and her work is documented in a really famous psychology book called In a Different Voice. But what she found is that around puberty, when girls were starting to be sexualized and their bodies were becoming something different, it was changing the way that other people spoke to them and they were realizing something about themselves and what it meant to have a voice. And so the phenomenon of self-silencing started to show up around puberty, that girls who could retain a sense of justice and a voice early on and say things like, that's not right, that's not fair, around puberty would start to say things like, well, you know, right? Or, ah, but, you know, what do I know? After they would say something with some strength, then there would be this kind of cutting down of voice. So whenever I talk about that research, people are really outraged and they think, oh my goodness. But the fascinating thing about Gilligan's work, and she talks about this in a book called The Birth of Pleasure, that that shift of the self-silencing of, I want to say the thing I want to say, but I can't, happens for boys around five. Mm. That it's happening so young for boys that they're learning this script of be a man and shut down and don't share your feelings. And if you're crying, it means that you're weak and you're like a little girl, as if that's something bad. Mm. But that shift and that I know something inside my body, I have a sense of knowing about what feels right, about what feels good, about connection, about what I need, that that switch gets turned off sometimes earlier than five, but predominantly around five. And so when we talk about the injustice for women, about the scripts of femininity, one of the things that I often talk about is I think that the patriarchal construction of masculinity hurts boys and men too. Mm. But there's so many men that I see in therapy who talk about feeling like they are alone in life because they've always been told that they can't connect with other men except if they're angry about sports games or if there's a sense of violence or aggression, and that they can sometimes connect with women, but it's threatening for their wives or their partners if they're connecting with too many other women emotionally. And so there's this isolation. It's like these walls get built up to protect the narrative of masculinity, but then inside there's there's a person who just wants to be human like everybody else, but has been so cut off from all of these dimensions of, the fullness and the richness of an emotional life from sensing, from being connected to the body and feeling and vulnerability that there is aloneness on the inside. Mm. So this might be a good time to tell everybody about the next kin men retreat. Okay. So we've got another kin retreat coming up and this is the third and you may be saying the third, when did tickets go on sale for the second uh, the second one sold out in pre-sales. So the patrons and the waiting list bought all the tickets first. So this time we are giving the patrons and the waiting list a shorter preview period before you, the, <laughs> the, the public podcast listeners, get a shot. Uh, either way, Ken Men is a retreat we do about confronting the toxic aspects of masculinity via psychology and emotional recovery for men it is uh, hosted uh, by myself and michael gunger and facilitated by hillary mcbride 
Of course, it wouldn't be a liturgist men's retreat unless it was led by a woman. And our next one's going to be in Ojai, California on May 24th, 25th, and 26th. You can learn more and grab your ticket uh, by going to theliturgist.com slash retreats. Now, I do want to let you know there are only 30 spots available, so those spots do go quite quickly. So if you're thinking about joining us, don't delay. Head to the website as soon as you can, theliturgist.com slash retreats. Okay, so here's another, here's a good mic speech about church in the Christian episode. This was a good one. I, I felt obligated to have a crescendo of music while you spoke. Do you remember this? Is it the Wait, one, the, jo- the running one? Where you talk about why you're a Christian. You talk about you're, you're unevangelical, and then, but this is why hmm. you're a Christian. You lay it out really well. Okay. It's quite beautiful. I'll be excited to hear it. <laughs> I'd love to talk about that with the, <laughs> the caveat that I am not evangelical anymore. Now I'm unvangelical. Like nothing interests me less than convincing other people that their lives should be more like mine. (laughs) Um, Nothing interests me less than convincing people that their faith should be like mine. But with that said, like, and this might sound triggering at first. So just preemptively assume I'm going a different way than these words will sound. But I actually believe at this point in my life that we are all living in sin. Being gay and being in a gay relationship doesn't happen to be one of those sins, but we are all living in sin. If the best and most compelling theological description I've ever heard of sin is a culpable disturbance of shalom. Culpable meaning like something you do or don't do. Uh, Disturbance meaning the lack of creation or the resistance of and shalom being a state of wholeness and peace. And if if shalom is that, and culpably disturbing shalom is sin, having any awareness of anthropomorphic climate change and not making an absolute and total reordering of your life immediately is a state of sinfulness. Uh, Because we are literally going to burn up the world, right? Like, and not in some distant... 10,000 year timeline, like a few hundred years, potentially the globe is uninhabitable and we all keep flying on airplanes and eating beef and running air conditioners and doing these things that provide us a little comfort to get through the day at the expense of other people. And so like, and I listen to this conversation that we're having, that's fascinating. And I hear so many things I resonate with, like is the resurrection a thing? Did that really happen? That kind of sounds ridiculous to me. What is new life? What is freedom? Um, and then I hear some people saying, like, I don't find that in church. And I get that because church has been such an institution of oppression and persecution and danger for so many people. But I didn't on accident compare the church to Comic-Con or to Harry Potter World at Universal. Because at both Comic-Con and Harry Potter World, people come together in a social consciousness and use a collective imagination to make mythology real. When I walk down 
the streets of Diagon Alley in Orlando. Yes, God. I am in the <laughs> wizarding world. I can point a wand at a window and utter a magic phrase. And objects will respond to magic. When I walk around at Comic-Con and I see people dressed up as characters from beloved mythologies, I see my imagination walking around in flesh and in blood, I dare say, incarnationally. And so when I contemplate the idea that at one point God took a physical body out of a tomb as a representation that it doesn't matter that we are born in sin, that we are evolved organisms that are innately wired to look after our own needs first, even if it comes at the expense of the other. An empty tomb says creation itself has a plan for that. And so the reason I like to go sing songs and take the Eucharist is so that my imagination, my imagination that there is some other way, that there is some other story that leads to the redemption and not the destruction of creation becomes real in that space. So I have a lot of caveats if I'm going to go to church. I don't go to churches that aren't affirming of all sexualities and gender identities. I don't go to churches that won't ordain women and queer people and have them in full and complete not only membership but leadership of the community. But I have to go to a place personally where the imagination becomes real. And then, like, there's this notion, is the church exclusive? If I go to a Christian church, am I saying that every Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu and Zen person and every non-religious person is in some fundamental way wrong about creation? And I think about John Philip Newell's beautiful image that when faith traditions are young, they are tiny saplings that have to be protected so they can grow. But once they are full-sized trees, they are meant to provide shade and comfort to all that come near them. And that no great tree is any better than one or the other. It simply matters which one is closest to you in proximity is a place that you can find comfort, care, and shelter. So I like really resonate with people who feel that they are in some way the church in exile or in the Christian diaspora. They can't walk through the doors of a church building anymore, but in some way are still fascinated with a story of resurrection as told by Christ, with the weird, strange teachings of Paul the Apostle, this mythology in the Hebrew Bible, all these things compel them, but they can't use the word Christian. I don't care. Because for me, I need a a social collective imagination. Other people find liberation in silent contemplation alone. And whatever leads you to that liberation, to that freedom, to that imagination, that there is some way that humanity can be saved, is freedom, is the gospel, is the church. And I love it, and I support it. And I consider any person who seeks a better tomorrow for everyone and not just themselves. My brother, my sister, my non-binary kin in this great tradition of faith. While we're on the topic of Christian here with this whole series, there's a couple other requests from this series I'll just put them in a row here, but... I like that we're doing a clip show, and it's... 
<laughs> some of the most recent episodes. <laughs> yeah, but it's good stuff. No, There's good five stuff. episodes of them. I'm sure most most listeners didn't listen to all five That's in their true. entirety. That's true. Um, so one of them was the this the the fuck you I'm a goat moment <laughs> from me, and then uh, and then a lot of people requested the the stories from the listeners that are not Christian at the end. Some of their comments that I read at the end of the not Christian episode. And there's a poem in there that's nice too. Um, so we'll combine those two things. So let's hear it for the goats. Let's hear it for the goats. But there's something about it in my experience with Christianity through the years that feels it is inherently, when I say this, it's not, I'm not talking about Jesus's message. I don't think Christendom understands Jesus's message. I'm talking about Christendom as it has developed through two millennia. To me, it is inherently exclusive as a whole, as it's been practiced with most of its practice. It has been seen as we are the ones who have the plan, the word of God, the one incarnation of God has come through this story, through this text. We're the ones with the secret and everybody else outside of that are the goats or the sheep. And to me, if you're going to ask me, like, are you a sheep or a goat? They're outside the table or whatever, the party, the wedding. They ask me at the door, are you a sheep or a goat? I'm like, fuck you. I'm a goat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got your episode title. (laughs) To me, it's almost like the because I I believe too strongly in the message of Jesus. What do you think you're going to ask a goat? What is a goat going to say that he or she is? Let's say I'm a sheep. You want to be the in group? You want to be to the exclusion of the out group? Are you going to go out with the goats? Are you going to leave the 99 to go to the one? And to me, there's something about that that rings so true to me, the actual message of Jesus, that's saying, no, I'm, I'm inside. I'm, I'm one of the sheep. Don't worry. I'm not one of those goats. I'm like, I'm not interested in that division. If, you're gonna, if you need to put me in a camp, put me in the outside. Fred said, Christianity has been used by politicians and companies to increase profits create an in-out group and control people by creating social pressure and rules. Susan says, There are so many beautiful texts where you don't have to work as hard to interpret them in non-hurtful, offensive, and harmful ways. In my opinion, the Bible is not one of them. Maria writes, I don't want a religion that's about buying me a ticket out of this evil, depraved world and escaping this sinful place. I want to be present with Mama Earth rather than longing for Jesus to take me away to a new heaven and a new earth. Tori writes, The exclusivity, the self-claimed monopoly on truth, the requirement to believe things that are scientifically impossible, the toxic purity culture, the lack of affirmation for LGBTQ plus folks, the shame and guilt associated with being a sinner. She goes on to say, Mystical Christianity can certainly be beautiful, but I still can't quite be a part of it, because Christian writings, beliefs, symbolism are no longer any more important to me than other types of spiritual wisdom. That is, I don't think Christianity is any more true than other ways of seeing things. So it wouldn't make sense to give myself that label. Lucy writes, I cannot reconcile my hope that love is the driving force of the universe 
with a story that places a requirement on human beings to choose to follow, repent, and proclaim a God in a certain manner. Even if there is an emphasis on grace, humans are still required to act, move towards, accept, and receive God's love, and buy into the story in order to be saved. The essence of the Christian gospel message seems exclusionary. Brandon said, I spent most of my life trying to believe, only to fall short. It was only when I embraced the fact that I didn't that I felt free. I like who I am and how I treat people better when I'm not a Christian. Holly wrote, For so long I was trying to find the perfect formulaic Christian worldview and trying on several different theological hats for all life's big questions, trying to hold on to Christianity. Finally, I realized I was choking on holy water while everyone else was bathing in it. And I just needed to set down the Christian title so that I could breathe. And now I feel more free to know and not know and be known. One of the patrons on there named Stephen actually wrote a poem at the end, and I liked it. I asked him to record it on his phone and email it to me. God, you were my child. I raised you in the womb of my perceptions. I coddled you with words like infinite one while I cradled you in my arms. You brought me such comfort. But then, dreamer that I was, stumbling through a corridor of false awakenings, I awoke to find that the sweet one I held was a bundle of ideas enfleshed around your shadow. You were never in my arms. Belief was in my arms. What arms could hold you? What word could speak you? When every time we shape our lips around the air, a tower collapses. We say love, and before the syllable is erected, we have eroded its foundation with our needs. We say God, and you turn toward us only to realize we had been calling over your shoulder to our traditions. Jason writes beautifully, Christianity is a religion of, we love you, but I'm tired of your pruning, snipping, chopping at my roots. I do not wish to be grafted into your vine or bred with careful selection so as to remove undesirable traits. Leave me wild intermingling with all those things not fit for your garden. There's lots more like this. There's like a hundred of them. There are stories of abuse. There are stories of shame. And there are stories of freedom. And I'm going to be honest with you. These people feel like my family. I know what it's like to lose your community. I know what it's like to have people think you're a heretic, an outsider. And ironically, it is the Christian faith of my upbringing that has taught me how God is with the outsiders. And so that's where I've been hanging out lately. Out here with the outsiders and the heretics and the 
sinners. <laughs> but for those of you who do consider yourselves Christians, I would like to say something to you as well, because you're my family too. You're our family too. I hope that you can hear the grace that has filled the hearts and voices of the Christians that we've had on this series talk about their faith in a way that makes it safe for people like me, people like these patrons whose words you've been hearing, to follow our hearts and conscience, and even for some of us, to follow Jesus into not being a Christian. (laughs) And for a world that gets so bent out of shape about language as far as who's on this team, who's on that team. What I love about this space is that we share it together with people who are supposed to be on different teams. Believers and atheists, Catholic, Protestant, agnostic, Mormon, Buddhist, tongue talkers and psychedelic users. We're all here to love, to share, to be connected in a place, in a space that is brave, where we can bring our true selves, our true thoughts to the table and be welcome as we are. May we never let labels get in the way of each other, of love, of synergy, of creating a more beautiful world together. Thanks for listening, everybody. His name. <laughs> I wasn't recording when you said that, unfortunately. <laughs> he said, let's hear it for the Ungalots, baby. <laughs> Is it Ungalots, Ungulates? I don't know how to say it. It's me. I've yeah, only read it. You've read it. Yeah. That, that's the, the, what is, not the species, it's the, what is that of goats? It's, it's what class? What level of classification? Uh, I believe it is the, uh, is it the genus or is it just a fancy name? <laughs> I don't know. Who cares? Uh, well, I, the thing is, somebody, deeply. somebody, you do, and somebody on this podcast is like an ungulate professor. <laughs> somebody that listens is like, oh, excuse me, it does matter. Um, Kingdom phylum. <laughs> he's looking ass. it up. He's on his iPad, folks. This is this is how it works. This is how you get to be science, Mike. When somebody says a passing comment about <laughs> ungulates, ungulates, You're like. We better find that out immediately. (laughs) That's very important. It is a a grouping of multiple orders that is not a full class. Are there so what other goats and Uh, um, horses? Oh, giraffes, camel, deer, hippopotamuses, rhinoceroses, hippopotami, (laughs) hippopotamuses. Is it hippopotamuses? It's, it's like just the song? hippopotamus. It's not hippopotami? It's, it's not hippopotami. It's certain, no. What? And what? closely related to whales. 
Hippopotamuses. Um, yeah, hippopotam- hippopotamuses is correct. Not hippopotamuses. Yeah. But hippopotamuses is the correct pluralization. Hippopotamuses hippop- like me too. <laughs> this is indeed how one becomes science, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got a request for uh, old Bobby Bell from oh, his yeah. little segment from his Bible episode. What, what is what do we consider there? Is he like the the Godfather of the liturgist podcast? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> he's definitely needs some sort of honorary degree or <laughs> post uh, emeritus. Yeah, we should put a plaque on the wall for him or something. <laughs> That'd be good. Rob Bell talking about the bible one of my first sermons this guy came up afterwards and he's like you missed it i was like i missed what he's like you missed that whole thing you did that whole passage about jesus but he says you realize jesus was jewish which (laughs) i was like no he was a christian (laughs) i mean i knew he was jewish but it was still like what he just goes into this thing about jesus was a jewish rabbi so he's having a a last supper with his disciples, that would have been a Passover Seder. There would have been four cups. So when he raises the cup, which of the four cups does he raise? Because if you knew which of the four cups, that would help understand the story. And when he says the poor will always be with you, that's a reference. You realize that's a reference. And there's actually that line where he says, that's a remez. You know what a remez is? And what about triple taxation? You know what a mikvah is? Because that relates to the, he just, just starts going off. And he's like, you're missing it. And so this guy's name is Richard. He started drop. I was probably 25 he started dropping these articles off at my office, like these photocopied articles by people I'd never heard of about the Bible, that this was written by real people in real places at real times. So lots of people told flood stories. And their general estimate in the Galilee at the time of Jesus is that people were taxed about 90%. So people cannot afford to hold on to their family lands. They literally don't have enough food, which is the feeding of 5,000. That's why people are following this itinerant, mystic, revolutionary rabbi because they're hungry. Why are they hungry? Like no one ever, I never heard somebody say, why are they so hungry? Oh, because of this thing that was happening with the temple and the Herodians and the Romans. So all this stuff just came to life. And then that took me into, oh, this Jesus tradition that I sort of grew up around it's almost like spirituality exists about six inches off the ground. Mm. We're kind of passing through here. Mm. The real action is somewhere else. But when I dove into the Jesus world and spirituality was a, a dimension of the material, and we can even obviously take that apart a thousand ways, but it's like, oh, no, it was about sweat, soil, and sex, and surfing. I added that part. But it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was about this world and Takun Olam, the healing of this world, and Olaba, Olam Abba, life in the age to come. Do you know what I mean? It all, it like went, it like, I picture it like sinking down into, oh, this is, and that the Bible was about politics and economics and how culture gets created and power and violence. But the Bible is actually about the things that everybody's talking about now. So I think that sort of, for me then, the Bible was no longer irrelevant. The first line of the Gospel of Mark is a ferociously political claim. So when people do that, like, sometimes you'll hear um, fancy pants Christian pastors be like, no, we don't get into the political, we just talk about the heart. and spirit. Well, then you probably should avoid reading this book, 
Because right. when Mark says this is the gospel, that's a loaded military propaganda term of the Romans, of Jesus Christ, he's the Christ, are you kidding me? The Messiah, that was, oh my word, so loaded and subversive and dangerous, and that was making claims about everything. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when I began to realize that this Jesus tradition was actually really big and really wide, and a lot of the things that I was like, why would I go with this when people over here are talking about this? Oh, that's present in this tradition. Mm. So I think just realizing that the Jesus tradition was so much bigger and wider from the opening pages of the Bible, it's assumed that human beings have a proper relationship with the soil. Like, that's an assumption. And it's assumed that if human beings were to not have a proper relationship with the soil, then your culture, your economics, your pol- everything would fall apart. Mm. So, like the exile, which is one of the major stories of the Bible, these people, Jerusalem is conquered, these people are hauled away. And in exile, they're trying to make sense of why did our culture get completely destroyed and we get hauled away like this. And the prophet Jeremiah says, oh, it's because you didn't let the land lie fallow. Hmm. One of the prophets in explaining the total devastation of the nation says, this happened to you because Leviticus, (laughs) you know what I mean? Leviticus says, farm the land for six years, let it rest for a seventh. This is sustainable farming practices. You know what I mean? Hmm. So, ideas that in 2017 people consider very progressive, sustainability, proper relationship with the soil, are actually not even named at some level. They're so assumed in the book of Leviticus, which is seen as primitive and barbaric. Mm -hmm. So, I just kept noticing that people would want to reject their Christian heritage in favor of what appeared to be new and enlightened and progressive ideas that were actually fully present in their own tradition. They just weren't aware of it. Let's do another heart, heartful one. This was uh, Lisa's poem on woman that mm. ended up becoming part of her book. The most beautiful thing I've seen, but it was in the context of this woman episode. I remember it was quite a profound, beautiful moment called Moment One. Moment One. First moments, the merging of two cells into one, multiplying, two, four, six, eight, rapidly growing and forming the information that will decide my hair, eyes, teeth, hands, my genetic DNA, everything I need to become a human and still I am invisible to the naked eye. I'm grown from my mother's own body, my blood from her blood, My heartbeat from her choice, making her belly swell and her hormones go crazy with rage and want for whipped cream filled donuts at 4 a.m. My body grows and she puts her hand upon her belly to feel a foot kick her side. The jerk of hiccups, the round of my head. She is proud, proud of her body that is a force, source of life to mine. I grow, her body tells her it is time, and I come into the world with pain and euphoria as she breaks her beautiful body to give me life. She sees me for the first time, what she has made, and it is good. The intricacies of the human body is something staggering. Veins, heart, lungs, synapses, toenails, chemicals, eyelashes, all good and beautiful. She holds my body and breathes in. 
I grow from a baby to a toddler, toddler to a little girl. I am four and I can run around with my shirt off and feel the fullness of the wind. I can paint my belly and take baths with my friends, slap my butt and laugh. We sleep under stars, run through sprinklers naked and wild. We are silly and think our bodies are strange and wonderful. I grow and I am six. I am taught what I can and cannot do with my body. I can no longer take my shirt off outside on my own front porch. No longer run around naked with my friends outside with paint on our bellies because the man across the street stares. So my mother takes me inside and tells me, I am now at the age where I need to be careful. A feeling comes I never knew before. I learn later the word for it is this, shame. We are at our friend's house and the teenage boy keeps making me sit on his lap. I don't understand this. We are all sitting in a circle, about 10 of us, and no one notices. I am confused and try to get away from him, but he holds me there and moves his hands in a way I don't understand. I feel I should obey because he is a strong older boy and I, a small girl, inherently weaker than he. I get mad that my body is not stronger, that I cannot break free. I feel it is my fault. Maybe I should not have worn shorts so my legs were covered. And then there was the church deacon, my friend's father, who insisted he put lotion on my legs after our bath. I didn't want him to, but he made me obey because he was a man and I, young and born the lesser of the sexes. It is uncomfortable and I thought he must know what he's doing. A respectable man, let alone a church leader, wouldn't do this. But now, now that I'm older and I know better, yes, he knew. So I am six and I can no longer be free in this body I once ran wild in, but I should cover it because there are predators and I don't tell because I am ashamed. And it was no big deal, really. No reason to fuss. I am 14. I feel my body changing on me and I no longer have the freedom of my youth. Blood comes and I am embarrassed hiding the grocery store runs, keeping it a secret, seeing my brother laugh when he looks under the sink. It is a wonder of growing into womanhood, but I am starting to hate being a woman. I'm ashamed of what my body does. This beautiful thing that I once ran free in is turning on me, making me awkward and uncomfortable because even now you are uncomfortable with that thought. Boys' eyes consume rather than see. I'm told this is my fault. I am told God wants me to cover my body, wear long skirts and shirts up to my collarbone and be sure it isn't tight. But how much skin is okay because other girls cover their whole body in black and I heard of the day there were two separate staircases for males and females so that males wouldn't accidentally catch a glimpse of a girl's ankle. Now that I am 14, now that I am changing, is God now ashamed with what he made? The body formed in my mother so good and beautiful turned to shame with age and religious threads weaving and constructing my social identity. Oppression for something I cannot control, something completely natural and good. If this body is not holy in and of itself, then God should have never made it in the first place. It's the flower hating its vibrant petals, the beautiful tree sprouting from the earth only to grow and be ashamed of its bark. I'm 20. I have rejected the shy, awkward aspects of womanhood and instead learned to joke about it to cope and be cool. But when night comes, I am often afraid to walk down the street alone. Every walk I take is accompanied with fear because I see the eyes consume. 
I hear the threats and am followed. I have friends who are victims. Every girl I know has been afraid, every one of them, from taking a simple walk to rape and a child coming from it. One hid in the laundry basket when she was nine. One silently prayed every night from 13 to 16 that her father would be too drunk to come into her bed. One was at a party with her friend. He wanted something she didn't, so he trapped her in the restroom. One hid from her own brother, another from her grandfather, another from her co-worker. Some say it's the woman's fault. The shirt was too low, the breasts too big. How can a man resist? But here's a staggering idea. Maybe it isn't the victim's fault. If in looking at the beautiful woman's body you cannot appreciate her beauty but must strip and consume, then it is true our culture has poisoned your mind. Consume, take, be the animal, take, take, take. Shame. Did my mother think that when she held me close to her chest at my birth? Was she ashamed? The beautiful form becomes forbidden and lusted at a certain age, all held together by a story of a serpent and a woman. Though some claim the curse is broken, some still believe it. The body is shamed, curse ever present. I am 30. I made two girls within my own body, felt the pain of bringing them into the world. And when I saw their bodies, I saw a miracle. Their skin and eyelashes perfect. Tiny lips, tiny fingernails, eyes embodying innocence and awe. They grow and run around my house naked and scream wild without self-awareness or social concern. I teach them about our culture and what is and isn't acceptable. But what I will not teach them is shame of their body. It was beautiful from moment one. And that will not change, not with age, not with anything. One daughter looks at her body in the mirror. We talk about the organs and the skin, how her body will change. She is beautiful on every count. I remember when I was six, and I know I have to warn her. Not shame her, but tell her how some people were not taught to love, but take for themselves, and she must be brave and aware. It pains me as I tell her. Her innocent mind not knowing why one person would hurt another in such a way. Don't be afraid, I tell her. But this is our culture, so be smart and be aware, my brave girl. Shame teaches us, but I will not teach my daughters in this way. I will empower them to be proud of their bodies, respectful of their bodies, in awe of how miraculous it is and what it is capable of. I will tell my daughter that to be a woman is not to be lesser, not object, not the bed in the red light district, nor the bitch in the hotel. She is not the body to exploit or product to consume. She is not shame. She is beautiful woman with beautiful body, capable of cosmic realities, holding someone close, experiencing love, making love, creating life, accepting another human life as her own, feeling pain, joy, giving strength, healing with a kiss, wholeness with a touch, giving physical and mental nourishment with her own body. She is grounded enough to follow, still capable to lead from a child to a nation. The woman's body is made in the image of love, from love herself, life herself, so she herself is of God. For my grandmother, for my mother, for my daughters, my friends, and as a reminder to myself, be proud, beautiful woman, 
Your body is intrinsically good, perfectly good, perfect from moment one. There's a couple that I haven't heard yet that were requested that I <laughs> haven't listened to yet, so I have no idea what they are. What's There's one from Resurrection episode 22. Is I had a time called code. Resurrection? I don't think so. It was episode 22, and it was about... Oh! It was about resurrection. It was about you talking about resurrection. I wonder if it's like the early... 22 was before your book still, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if some of that stuff turned into what you wrote about the resurrection in your book. Episode 22 is called, Who Am I? Who Am I? Well, apparently Spirit, you talk about soul, resurrection. Body, and the mystery of consciousness and the ways our perception of the world seems distinct from our physicality means most people believe their consciousness transcends their bodies alone. But what are we? A spirit trapped in a body or an illusionary emergence property of neurons and synapses? We have the highest minded episode descriptions <laughs> of any podcast i've ever heard just take the take a person off the street read them that description and then say hey what do you think this episode's about in the beginning there was a rapid expansion of a singularity Three hundred eighty thousand years later there was light and when there was light there was hydrogen and there was helium and there were stable fundamental forces of physics they worked together to birth the first stars and those stars lived for hundreds of millions of years before they died and exploded and spread their essence across the sky into clouds of heavier dust than existed before the forces of physics worked together once again to craft new stars now tightly packed into the first galaxies and the cycle repeated. That cycle had to happen several times before we could have planets. Planets could only exist because a few generations of stars died and were reborn. And it was from that process that this planet that we live on was allowed to exist. And this planet we live on is covered with a film of life, unlike any we've seen in the universe. As far as we know today, it's unique. That life is fed by a process where carbon from the air, minerals in the soil are attached together with the energy of photons through photosynthesis. And so everything on this planet lives by the constant sacrifice and dying of the nearest star. Every single blade of grass, every tree, every bush on this planet is a resurrection of the sun's energy. And I exist because I steal that energy by consuming other things that have died. That dead matter literally returns to life in my body through my metabolism. And one day I will die and a lot of my atoms will go right back to being alive in something else. One day our sun will explode and spread its guts and its essence across the sky and will then form new planets and new stars. Resurrection is the pattern of the physical reality we see today. Resurrection is the language of creation, death, burial, and renewal. 
is the way that change occurs. And so, do I find it that incredulous that somehow the source of all left his signature on our civilization through resurrection? I don't know. That seems to be poetically appropriate. All right, so we've got two more here. One from the Pale Blue Dot episode that we'll title Nerdgasm, and then a pick from Science Mike. So that day, <laughs> going back to uh, 1968, which amazingly was a, exactly a year after Dr. King gave one of the most profound sermons, a sermon of peace, where he talked about the interrelated structure of all reality. December 24th, 1967, he gave that sermon. Exactly one year later, with King no longer here, those three astronauts took that picture. And they, I mean, more importantly, they saw it themselves. You know, Lovell, Borman, Anders, they looked out the window. They were the first human beings. You know, if you could imagine some kind of body sat for angel, whatever, looking at the planet from a deep time perspective, they're looking at life evolve, right? Lava. Revolves, starts to sing opera. They're like, wow, hmm. this is cool. That's from Brian Swim, a mentor of mine. You know, he's an evolutionary cosmologist. He says, lava becomes opera, which mm. I think I love that. Yeah. So they're looking at this lava becoming opera and they're like, wow, that's cool. And then they see this little blip. Something leaves because there's all this stuff leaving and going round. And then something leaves and goes mm. all the way to the moon. Wow. And it's not just the first human beings. It's the first, to our knowledge, it's the first part of Earth, part of life, right? Yeah. Right? Wow. And if you think of human beings as being embedded within this living, dynamic biosphere, what's our function? You know, we're of the planet, not on it. Yeah. That was the realization I had at 15 that gave me my peak experience. I just realized, wow, we haven't been made over here and the planet made over here and then yeah. just dropped in. And then, no, we've actually grown you know, we're a, a self-reflective aspect of the biosphere itself. It's like Alan Watts talks about right. the, the planet. This, the planet is a peopling planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a yeah. tree makes apple apples. So, in a weird sort of way, that astronaut, that Jim Lovell, is a, in a weird sort of way, is the is the from one perspective, is the biosphere, the planet itself, looking back at itself. Yeah, right. Yes. And for me, that was a really big moment. That's what happened at fifteen. I was like. I'm the Gaia. Yeah. It's not the Gaia, this theory of James Lovelock. I don't know if you guys talk about it on the show, but you know, this idea of uh, the planet being like a meta organism that we are, you know, the, the planet has this kind of like homeostatic homeostasis where it regulates life and the conditions for life itself. And that we've always been thought of, you know, the environment or the planet is there. Humanity's here. But suddenly that boundary going, and realizing that's non-human nature. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm an aspect of that same evolutionary life continuum, but just in this kind of bipedal, self-reflective form. And so what happened on that day, right, a year after King's sermon, on Christmas Eve, when they look out the window, they take that picture, that two-dimensional board game suddenly changes, and it becomes this fragile oasis. That's one of, that's Ron J. Garin, our partner. That's his term for it. And what happens suddenly is we move into a new period of time. 
where our civilization suddenly is completely and utterly out of sync with that reality. Yeah. And those of us that, there was people before that, of course, realized this, but we now have an image. Suddenly we're like, wow, we are totally out of sync. And, and 2018, right, next year, Christmas Eve next year is the 50th anniversary. Whoa. So what we're doing is bringing together a bunch of international astronauts to talk about that and to imagine what is the next 50 years like. Because we need a new Earthrise. But this is the crazy and trippy part. We don't need to look at Earthrise 1968. We don't even need to look at Earthrise... I feel like my voice should get deeper. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even need to look at Earthrise 2018. (laughs) An American. We need, of course. We need to look at Earthrise 2068. (laughs) So what I mean by that is that what (laughs) what we need to do is we need to look at Earthrise again, but this time, instead of looking 50 years backwards, we yeah. need to look 50 years forward. Yeah. And, and what we need is we need a visionary future. We need a visionary future that inspired King, that inspired President Kennedy. Yeah. And that visionary future of 2068, that's what we need. And the great thing about it is that Astro underscore Ron... <laughs> Ronald J. Garren from Yonkers, New York, who went to space twice. Spent six months. Once on STS-128, two weeks with the space shuttle. It was a nice, easy ride. Landed very lovely. The next mission, 2011, Expedition 28, he went with the Russians. And they uh, went on the Soyuz, which is like three dudes getting into the back of a VW Beetle and plummeting through the atmosphere and (laughs) smashing into the (laughs) Kazakhstan rocks. So... With rocket brakes. <laughs> With, yeah. 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 So, so you don't crash right, right before work. you land. There's right. just please a work. rocket explosion. <laughs> so Ron and I and Jacob and a number of other people, we're putting together this, this group called Constellation, which is this group of international astronauts. But we're also, and Ron's putting on this, they call it a MOOC, Massive Online Course something or other, and it's called Earthrise 2068, and he wants to crowdsource a vision of that future. Because instead of being saturated by the dystopias of our science fiction, right? I feel like Blade Runner came out, was very successful, and everyone was like, let's do that. Let's, let's keep doing that. And the Star Trek vision, completely lost. Mm. So we need to bring back the Star Trek vision, right? Mm. Damn right. I'm a big, big Trekkie, by the way. Me too. Okay. There we go. I knew it. I, <laughs> you know what? I knew it. And I mean that in the nicest possible way, because... People, there's people that like Star Trek, and there's people that don't like Star Trek. And I was like, that guy. I've got the technical manual. Do you survive, like, man? I've got the yeah. blueprints. Nice. NC1701, bro. <laughs> the D? All Let me just way. ask you. Let me ask Is it Enterprise? Which Enterprise is it? Which one for the you? The D. Yeah, got to be the D. Gotta be the, people go with the E? Nonsense. The E? That, no, that's like... I lived on the D. You know what I mean? I feel like I, yes. after watching TNG, I feel like I'm yeah, on the t-shirt you could, I lived on the D. You could <laughs> let me loose right now yes. in a scale replica of the Enterprise D, and I could navigate. I could go anywhere in the ship. I got a new hero right now. Have you seen uh, the new Bridge Crew game coming to VR? Dude, we were on it. At the future of storytelling, we did it. And I look around. No, dude, it's so cool. I look round and my mate, Mike, had ceased to become Mike and he was a black Vulcan woman. 
in a red outfit doing the phases. Yes. And I just went, I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> so... <laughs> You've got to do it, dude. It's coming out oh, for PlayStation. Oh my I gosh. Can't wait. We should do it together. I'm I want to see your face, actually. In. Yeah. This is what could be called a nerdgasm. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened right there? Oh, dear. But it, just one last point on Star Trek. So many. One, we, we also released a film called Planetary, um, which had two astronauts. It's kind of an eco philosophy film. She released at South by, and, and we started with two different astronauts. One of them's Ron. The other is Mae Jemsen. She's one of the first African American women to get a space. She is also the only person on Star Trek to have actually gone to space. Oh. She played a transport chief on, like, I think it's like season two or season three. And she like just called them up and was like, "Can I be on Star Trek?" I'm an astronaut, and they were like, "Yep." So the first question when I when I sat down with her to interview her, she's a, she's an inc- she's like one of these remarkable women. She was like, I was like, was going to space difficult? She's like, no, going to Sierra Leone after the UN left and doing triage was difficult. And I was like, oh, right, you're one of those like remarkable body sat for angel humans. So anyway, the interesting thing about it was. I I said to her, I was like, what was it like being on the Enterprise? (laughs) (laughs) Not the space shuttle. (laughs) So we had a laugh. We had a laugh. Anyway, sorry. 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 I feel like the nerdgasm has happened now. We can relax. All right, so are there any, uh, before we go, Mike, are there any clips that you would like to hear? I requested the the epistemological, I'm putting you on the spot here. I, I requested the epistemological explanation of relativity. Anything Prop said on episode 34 mm. would be the clip I would add to this show. That's good. Let's hear prop with some fire. You know, here's the thing. Speaking from a minority experience, and I say minority, I say in a person of color, specifically in America, and even more specifically, the black experience. Uh, politics, it can't be compartmentalized. You know, yeah. you can't say that yeah. politics is a different conversation than family and church and music. That's it's the same conversation. It's just the nature of our experience in this country. You can't, you can't, it's very you true. can't separate them. I've been learning that the ability to not talk politics is an embodiment of what someone called privilege. What mm. I tend to call a little harsher label, white supremacy. Yeah. And what politics is really talking about how you arrange bodies and spaces. That's what politics is. And yep. it, to, to say, I don't want to talk about politics. It means you don't have to worry about, the spaces for your body. Yeah. Wow. That's it. I mean, facts in any entrance into black American and I'm, and I'm being specific about that, like the black American experience, there's no time in our country where politics has not grossly shaped and informed it. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's the shape from Negro spirituals, which are because of slavery, you know what I'm saying? So like, um, rock and roll and Ray Charles and the Chitlin circuit was because we weren't allowed in 
you know, white clubs. Yep. So it's like there's nothing, you know, funk and soul and Marvin Gaye singing Mercy Me. He's talking about war. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no as no part of our experience that hasn't been shaped by the war on drugs and the crack attack. And it's it's this is our experience. Redlining, sharecropping, Jim Crow. There's no part of the black American experience that's not intimately tied to politics. Man. It's a it what a good show. It's a good show. <laughs> if I don't say so myself. It's a good show. We've been we've been blessed to be with in in contact and in proximity to amazing people. And uh and that we've that we crossed paths and have this strange friendship of ours. What a what a, what a fortunate thing. <laughs> And as we move into season five, if you haven't already joined our email list or a part of our Patreon community, uh, I'd encourage you to do so because as we uh, issue a call for additional contributors uh, onto the Liturgist podcast, those are the avenues we will use. So if you have any experience telling stories or in journalism or creating broadcast media, and you'd like to be uh, considered as a voice that we use on this program uh, as we figure out precisely how we're going to do that. We'll issue that again on our Patreon page and on our email list. You can join our email list just by going to theliturgist.com and we will do our best to annoy you with a pop-up in short order. We will be back in season five with some things we're really excited about. We're going to be doing a Buddhist series we're going to be doing a God series. We've got lots of ideas um, that we're super excited about, some of which have been in process for <laughs> years. Years. <laughs> years. We've got live episodes uh, from uh, Nashville and Minneapolis that yeah. are ready to uh, enter your ears. So we'll see you in 2019 with season five. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.